Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network, headquarters also known as... The Ant Hill. Today we're going to have a cool show, a different show, a fun show. I have Rob Myers standing by on the line. Rob is the head of the organization for bat conservation. You might be thinking to yourself, why is Jack bringing this bat guy onto uh, the survival podcast? Well, folks, we're going to talk today about myths about bats. We're going to talk about attracting them around your home. We're going to talk about how they can create fertilizer for you for your for your gardening Uh, in a very passive way, we're going to talk about how they control insects. Do you know that there is nothing in the world that consumes more insects than a bat? So we're going to talk about how we can make these guys part of our homestead in a way that makes them very compatible with what we're doing. We're going to talk about how to deal with them as a problem. If they're in your attic or something like that, how to get them out, how to give them a better alternative. We're going to talk about providing um, an environment that is conducive to bats. And as crazy as that sounds to some of you guys, trust me, when you hear what Rob has to say, you're going to learn a lot today, and you're going to realize that this is a key component of our ecosystems that for many of us is lacking. And by bringing it into balance, a lot of the other things we try to do will come further into balance as well. Before I bring them on, though, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors and do our housekeeping. Remember, lots of stuff going on while I'm on vacation, so don't skip the housekeeping today. Housekeeping item one is always, let's uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. I love KnifeKits because they let anybody... And I mean anybody practice knife smithing. Whether you want to do kind of buy a prefabricated, you know, affordable, easy to put together kit where you do final fit, finishing, polishing, sharpening, and that's pretty much it. You can do that, or you can get raw materials. I always mention Mammoth Tusk. Guess what? There's a guy out there in our audience. I'm not ready to announce who he is yet till the knife is done, but he makes custom knives and he does it kind of as a, a small business in addition to his regular income. And he's making a knife for me right now, and he's getting one of the components from KnifeKits.com. And that component is Mammoth Tusk. I am going to have a Mammoth Tusk knife, and I am jazzed about that, to have a knife I'll be able to carry with me every day that's a living, that's a, not a living, but a, basically a fossil uh, from prehistoric times. That's just awesome. So uh, that's really kind of cool, and I don't know a lot of other places you can get something that exotic or something as simple as kind of a prefabricated kit. That tells you whatever you want your knife making, you can find it there. And remember, they give a discount to all members of the Member Support Brigade. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical, veteran-owned, American company, and a great service selection and price. What more could you ask for? That's Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff that you need to live the tactical lifestyle is available at Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Magpul Magazines, one example of some great stuff they have. Another thing they've done recently, though, is uh, they've partnered up with John Willis of SOE Tactical Gear, and you can now get all of John's SOE Tactical Gear stuff at Sawtooth Tactical. So check them out. Remember, they also have a sister site, and you get a big discount on that sister site if you're a member of the Support Brigade. 
Uh, next up, remember to connect with us Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Lots of cool stuff coming to that as we move through the summer. I got all kinds of stuff scheduled at the homestead uh, that's going to be going on to YouTube. That's been kind of a slow ramp up period during the transition, vacation, move, all of that. But that's all about to change. We have things on the schedule. Become a YouTube subscriber today. Um, also remember with the MSB, Member Support Brigade, exclusive content available to only members. Awesome discounts, great program. I mean, if you buy stuff for preparedness and gardening and stuff like that, you're going to you know, earn a profit by being a Member Support Brigade member. But while I'm away on vacation, i got a sale going. Uh, and you can uh, get... That discount will get you uh, $15 off your first year of membership in the Member Support Brigade. Uh, that means your first year of membership is $35. Bucks. That's a great deal. Uh, you can use it if your membership is expired. You log in and set up a new subscription as a renewal. You can use it that way. New members can use it by writing it on the form or signing up with PayPal. Existing members can't use it to an extended membership. It takes too much logistical issues for me to do while I'm on vacation. We'll do something like that again for you guys maybe this fall like I did with the uh, the moving sale. But again, co-word vacation, $15 off your first year. Uh, if I'm going to go away, I'm going to leave you a great deal while I'm gone. All right, folks, and as I uh, said during the uh, introduction segment, we are fortunate to have with us today uh, Rob Myas of the Organization for Bat Conservation that's going to talk to us about making bats, uh, make a bat-friendly environment around your home and uh, how to keep Keep bats where they belong and uh, out of where they don't belong. So, uh, hey, Rob, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Hey, um, you know, I had a listener of mine. I don't remember exactly who it was that I think tied us together, uh, but he's actually been on my case for a long time. Hey, you got to get this guy on the show. You know, I know it's a little bit different of a topic. I actually think it's a great uh, a great uh, synergy uh, having you on the show because even though we talk about emergency preparedness and, and, and long-term planning for disaster, we also talk a lot about self-sufficiency. We talk about a lot about gardening and sustainability and permaculture, sustainable agriculture. And I think bats fill a really interesting um, uh, niche in the environment. And unfortunately, they've kind of taken it on the chin with some of the things done with pesticides over the years and misunderstanding by people. But for the folks that are maybe like, you know, what's this, bats, you know, why would you want bats around your, your property anyway? Why would you want to attract them? Yeah, and I, I think you're totally right about, um, you know, people caring about bats, and, and they should. And, and the biggest misconception about bats is that they're not worth anything. You know, people, people have heard that bats might be blind or they, they might get stuck in their hair or drink their blood. And, and those are, those are, those are myths. Bats are not blind. Uh, bats don't, go, don't go into people's hair. You know, they don't attack people. Um, and, and vampire bats do exist, but they don't live in the United States. They live in Central and South America. And they usually go up to cows. But the biggest myth is, is that people just have no idea why bats are around. And so bats are the primary predators of nighttime insects. They eat more insects than things like purple martins or dragonflies or, you know, other kinds of, uh, even spiders and things like that. One bat could eat 2,000 to 6,000 insects every single night. They eat moths, gnats, flies, mosquitoes, beetles, just about anything that flies at night. And the insects that they eat the most are moths and beetles, and those are huge crop pests and forest pests as well. Absolutely. And I've noticed you guys are big on the whole concept of a bat house. And I mean, I think a lot of people are probably like, you know, bats 
pretty much in nature look after themselves. So why would a homeowner in suburbia or a rancher or a farmer or a small-scale agriculture producer want to put up housing for bats? Can't they just kind of make their own way? Yeah, I think I think most people put up bat houses for three different reasons. One is because they like bats and they want to see bats. It's, you know, kind of like putting up a birdhouse or a bird feeder. The other reason is that um bats eat so many insects and they actually fly pretty close to around where they live, so near their roost. So let's say you don't see many bats flying around, you only see one or two bats. Well, they don't fly in flocks. So when they forage, they forage only a couple of bats together. The only time you'd see lots of bats is if the roost is nearby. So a lot of people will want to put up a bat house to bring a colony in closer. So I was just I was just on the phone just minutes ago with one of our members just outside of Indianapolis that uh lives right next to a farm and he's got about 1200 bats in six of his bat houses. So between all six bat houses, he's got about 1200 bats. Couple different species, but he he has very few insects around, and the neighbors also absolutely love it, and obviously the farmer absolutely loves it as well. And then the third reason to put up a bat house would be because sometimes bats get in people's houses. So they might get behind their shutters or inside their attic, and you need to provide them an alternative so they live outside of your house. Yeah, I, I think that, like, I recently experienced something similar to this. They weren't in the house, but um, we were getting ready to move, and I was uh, I had these umbrellas, like the big ones that you put up, uh, like, over a deck to create shade, and both of them were down. And when we opened both of them to clean them out before we packed them up, and we actually donated them instead of bringing them up to our new place, uh, both of them had a couple bats living inside the umbrella. And to me, that means that, you know, one, they didn't, that they, they didn't have a, enough habitat that was suitable for them, so they were using the next best thing. I'm sure there are plenty of places a bat would prefer to be other than in a canvas umbrella, but I guess in my area with, the, you know, those particular bats, that was the best they could do. So if I had given them a place that would have been more suitable to them, they probably would have been happy to use it. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I do have, um, we, I've talked to a lot of people that have occasionally gotten them inside an umbrella like that. So that's really interesting. Or even sails, uh, to on a sailboat. Uh, but, but especially in barns, you know, in attics, behind shutters, log cabins, uh, they're really notorious to have bats living inside them. So yeah, just providing an alternative is, is a really great way. If, if people have bats living in their attic or something, the best thing to do is to find out exactly where they're coming and going. So what I do is, is I watch the house. So let, let's say sunsets at 9 o'clock p.m. I'll watch the house from 9 o'clock till 9.30. And if there's bats inside, they're going to be flying out if it's warm, like let's say above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, or and especially if there's insects flying. I mean, these bats are going to be hungry. So you'll see the bats fly out, and then you can identify the spot and then put on some type of one-way funnel or flap that allows the bats to be able to exit, but then they can't get back in. And then, hopefully, they'll move right over into the bat house. Very, very cool. And what would you say to the people that have, you know, you talked about myths. And I think one of the big myths out there is that, you know, and it's not really a myth, it's just out of context. And that's that rats carry, or, uh, bats carry rabies. 
And a, a rat can carry rabies, a dog can carry rabies, a possum can carry rabies, a, any mammal can carry rabies. But I think people have this tendency to believe that r bats have a higher incidence of rabies than any other mammal out there. Is that the case, or is it just uh, kind of a uh, something that's kind of an old wives' tale or a, a scare tactic or what? I think rabies is actually really interesting. You know, I've been studying bats for almost 20 years, and obviously rabies is, is one of the, you know, key topics that we're, we're always discussing. Um, rabies, it, you know, is a, is a virus that usually kills the animal. Um, it's, uh, it comes through either uh, a bite and the saliva going direct directly into your bloodstream or nervous tissue from an animal going into your bloodstream so i mean most people don't come in contact with that so um so it's it's usually a bite uh so you know it's not actually that easy to get rabies you have to get bitten by a wild animal that has rabies and then you don't wash your hands you know you don't go to the doctors and 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 so it's rare in the united states Less than uh, usually one or two people die of rabies in the United States every year. Worldwide, sixty thousand people die of rabies. And and Jack, do you know do you know the number one animal that transfers rabies to humans? I would guess it would be dogs. That's right. Yep. Uh, almost, almost entirely. I almost hate saying it, but that just, it, it would, because you have to get bit, and I, I, I've been around plenty of bats, and I've never been bit by a bat. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and also, in, in, in other countries, you know, especially in third world countries, people just, it, it's not part of the culture, but also, especially, it, it's not cost effective to get your dogs and cats vaccinated. So, You know, in, in, you know, you go to Mexico for vacation and boy, uh, you know, don't pet any stray dogs or cats, man, because they're, they're probably not vaccinated. So. And they're more likely to bite because they're in close proximity with humans and they don't have fear of humans. Where, I mean, like I said, I think about the only way I know to get a bat to bite you and there are vampire bats that will feed on, on blood of, of mammals. But again, they're not here. And, uh, you know, I was in Panama for two years and they're, they're there and we never had a problem with them coming after us. But other than that, I just don't see you getting bit by a bat unless you, you know, uh, uh, grab it or hold on to it in some way. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely right. Now, where people, I think, uh, sometimes misunderstand the bats and rabies is one is that bats aren't carriers of rabies. Um, so if they get the disease and, and the symptoms, Um, they'll, you know, they, they don't recover from that. So they don't have the disease, pass it on and, and, and continue to live. If they get the symptoms, they die from it. Uh, so uh, to put an analogy, it's not like a mosquito transmitting, um, yeah, what am I, malaria, where the mosquito is not affected by the malaria right. and it's a vector. It's, it doesn't work that way. If the bat gets rabies, the bat too gets sick and usually succumbs to the illness. So it's a self-limiting thing. Right. So it's not like all bats have rabies because they'd all be dead. You know, they would just be dropping, you know, all over the place. Now, of the animals that are sent in in the United States, Bats are the highest number of animals sent in to be tested for rabies. So then, they're, 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 they're in general, the raw number is much higher. So that, that tends to kind of skew, I think, information. Because, I mean, who's going to catch a 
avid raccoon in your backyard. You're just sure. gonna run inside. Sure. Uh, but if you, if sure. you find a bat in your house, you know, you might, you know, you, you'd probably send that in to be tested. But a, about one in 250 bats test positive in the wild. So when researchers have been called in and like, I have a friend of mine in Indiana and he, he, um, he was called in years ago to a school and there was bats living in the school and one of them was out on the front lawn and they just, they tested it just in case and it tested positive for rabies. So they went and collected all 300 of the rest of the bats in the school and not a single other bat tested positive. Wow. Wow. So that tells you that it's, it's maybe not as prevalent. And I, I think the other thing is, uh, when an animal gets rabies, it either dies mm. or it starts to behave in a peculiar manner Correct. and it becomes disoriented and, and it's more likely to be found. So when you find a bat laying dead, uh, it's probably got a higher probability of being rabid than a bat flying around eating mosquitoes acting like a bat. So since people have a predisposition to be afraid of them, when they find one uh, acting erratically or dead, they, you know, naturally knee-jerk, it could be rabid. Well, um, I, I think that maybe because they fall out of the air when they die, they might be more likely to find one than a raccoon that's going to run off in the woods somewhere and lay down and die. I, I don't know. It just seems to me like they probably get a bad rap. Yeah, and, and the other things, I mean, sometimes people find a bat on the ground because it, it's a young bat or uh, a predator knocked it down. Uh, or sometimes bats actually will go underneath leaf litter on cold nights to stay warm. Sure, sure. I know when I, when I was in Panama, we had a, a bar that we used to go to. It was on a third story of this building. And we probably uh, uh, got a bat in there at night. They must have been coming through the ducks or somewhere. And uh, you pretty much have all these soldiers running around with cups. And somebody would eventually get one in a styrofoam. They're little bitty bats. and get them in a styrofoam cup and take them outside and let them go. Oh. Um, so, I mean, it, to me, uh, my, my overall experience with bats is they're pretty friendly critters. Now, one of the things that anybody that gardens knows that, is that, and I don't know if this works out or not. It's kind of a hypothetical thing here. But if you're looking for good quality fertilizer, it's hard to do better than bat guano. So if I have a bat house, in an area, those bats obviously at times are going to do what they do and drop manure to the ground. Can I basically grow? Will, can I? Will that, let's say, add nutrient to that particular area? It's a, it, as far as I know, it's the highest nitrogen content of any animal dropping. So it's it's actually pretty expensive if you if you've ever tried to purchase it in you know in small bags. It's pretty expensive. Uh, so you're right though the. Bat guano is a great fertilizer. You know, you use it pretty sparingly. Uh, but uh, a, what a lot of people do is they, they'll either put a trough, you know, underneath or a bucket or something like that and catch it. You you know, it, it also fills up with rainwater, and then it's a nice diluted, so then you can go ahead and, and you know, use it in, in your garden. But it, it is, it's great fertilizer. Are there any disease concerns with that, or is that a pretty safe activity? Completely non-toxic, yeah. Oh, okay, great, great. Yeah. Right. Um, so I also want to talk, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't think I have a lot of bats in my area. Now, I've lived in Texas. I live in Arkansas now. I lived in Pennsylvania. And I know there's bats in every one of those states. I've seen bats out in California. I've seen bats in the Northwest. So are, is there any part of America where you, if you put up a bat house, basically it's a decoration. You're not going to get any bats in. Or are there pretty much bats throughout most of North America? Yes, there's, yep, there's bats everywhere. Alaska's got five different species. Um, wow, even Alaska. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's, uh, you know, plenty of species up, uh, you know, throughout Canada as well. Uh, the only state that you would not put up a bat house is Hawaii. There is a bat there. It's called the hoary bat. 
uh, H-O-A-R-Y in Hori, means frosted. It's actually a really beautiful bat. It's got some dark color, but it's got some white and some yellow around its face. It's a solitary bat. It lives in live trees, so it would not use a bat house. Okay, well that makes perfect sense. It, so it's not that, so anywhere in America there are bats. There's just one state where there's uh, no need for the houses. So let's talk a little bit about bat houses. What makes a, a good bat house? Can people build their own? Can they buy them from your organization? Um, and, and when you have your bat house, kind of how do you want to set it up? Is there certain things you want to take into consideration with wind and and sun angles and overhangs and protection from the elements? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been doing research on bat houses for a really long time. Um, I, I started off uh, uh, at, a, um, at a university studying bats, and that was one of the first things I was really interested in. Um, so what you want to do is you want to make sure the bat house is, is uh, first of all, let's talk about placement. You want to put the bat house up at least 15 feet off the ground, the higher the better. Face it, face it towards an open, sunny location. So even even in the south, you know, um, we've got bad houses that are occupied in, you know, Orlando, Florida, San Antonio, Texas. They're on a pole with getting full sunlight all, all day long, and they still get bats in them. So they do like really warm temperatures. It's better to put up more than one bat house. I usually put up, if I'm putting up a pole, I'll put up a bat house back to back. So you've got one facing south and one facing north. Or, or one facing southeast and northeast and northwest. So then you've got a, a little bit of te- temperature difference between the two houses. On a pole or the side of a building work best. Tall, mature trees, or especially dead or dying trees can work too, but a bat house that gets too much shade, the bats don't find it very well because they do use their eyes to find it, their eyesight. Also, it's too cool. So you do, you do want to keep it in a, facing an open, sunny location. So that's placement. Okay. The other thing is, is the design. A small bat house that looks like a birdhouse without without a bottom, like a bluebird house without a bottom, is too small. Um, what you generally want to have is at least 24 inches tall, uh, 15 inches uh, wide, and uh, the openings at the bottom or, or the chambers on the inside about three-quarters of an inch. So, yeah, people can go on our website, batconservation.org, and then they can um, download uh, plans on how to build their own bat house. We do sell bat houses, and um, we've, uh, they're made in uh, Illinois um, by a family-owned company who uses uh, northern white cedar. And so cedar or exterior-grade plywood, screws, you know, uh, outdoor screws, caulking is also important because it's different than a birdhouse. A birdhouse... You want to make sure it's cool so that the baby birds don't bake. Well, a bat house, these are mammals, and we need to keep them warm. So uh, that's that's why we want to keep it warm, dry, and safe from predators. Very cool. Um, I, I also, you know, I do a lot with gardening, and I talk a lot about gardening. And one of the big things I, I do from a gardening perspective is teach people that we want predators in the garden. Now, obviously, bats are a predator. But when I'm talking about that, I'm generally talking about the insect predators. I'm talking about assassin bugs and praying mantis and ladybugs and things like that. So one of the things that we'll do in our plantings is instead of trying to plant everything because I either like to look at it or I like to eat it, we also plant some things that are there for the predators. So we'll plant things like herbs with lots of flowers and stuff like that that will bring in, um, you know, 
uh, predatory wasps and things like that. So if I want to really create a, a bat-friendly environment, I want these great predators in my area, are there things also that maybe I could plant to create more than just, because it, it was like if I want to bring deer in, I'll probably want to create f- feed for them, and I'll want to create nesting areas. If I want to bring in squirrels, I want to create nesting areas and feed. It's not just about giving them a nesting area. I also want to give them everything they need in their environment. So are there things that I can plant that actually would attract bats, even though they're maybe not a vegetarian bat? Yeah, absolutely. So it would be things, um, you know, that would, uh, like a flower or something like that, that would bloom at night or scent at night as well. So I, uh, I know a lot of people will plant evening primrose and that will, that will, you know, bring in moths that'll attract in moths and then bats will, uh, then end up, um, you know, feeding on, uh, those moths. Um, some other things, um, Goldenrod, uh, flocks also, um, there's, there's also non-natives too that you could plant, four o'clocks, um, moonflowers, and then aromatic, uh, uh, herbs as well, which will bring in moths. But, um, climbing vines is also a good idea, uh, um, and because there are solitary bats, like red bats, that will hang in, uh, climbing vines. The, do you got any recommendations on like what type of a climbing vine would be good for? I mean, yeah, you know, I do a lot with uh, muscadine grapes on trellises and stuff like that. Is that good for them, or do they need something more substantial than that? No, they're really not picky. So, uh, yeah, actually, just you know, something something covering uh, that they that they just kind of hang right behind. It's it, they're not attracted to like the smell or anything like that. They're just attracted to the fact that the, these vines are easy to, you know, to land on and, and climb behind and, you know, live in and stay protected. So that's really just what they're looking for is a, is a protection. Uh, spruce trees are great for hoary bats. Uh, they're found across the uh, across North America, same way with the red bats as well. So those are solid. So that species, that's a species you mentioned in Hawaii. Yeah. So even though they have those in Hawaii, we have them here too. Yep. It's not a Hawaiian bat. Okay, very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, so they do. They're the only. They're the, the they're the only um, indigenous land mammals to the Hawaiian Islands. So no other land mammals should be on any of the Hawaiian Islands. Only that. Only the hoary bat, which is one of the largest bats in North America. It has about an eighteen-inch wingspan. Uh, That's pretty big. Yeah, so it's beautiful, beautiful colors too. Uh, but um, yeah, so those types of things in the garden, um, climbing vines. Uh, you know, if people can leave up dead and dying trees, especially if they've got bark peeling. You know, obviously if they're going to fall fall on a building, you you know take them down. But snags are great for bats, also for woodpeckers and other you know other types of uh, animals. And like you said, I mean, really creating a a, a healthy uh, mixed ecosystem. You know, helps to decrease, um, you know, all these, all these other insects that have really targeted a, a monoculture. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the, you know, it's about diversity, but it's not about diversity for diversity's sake. Just so you can say I have 50 species or 500 species of plants and animals and insects in my, my yard. Yeah. It's about interconnected diversity. Uh, that all serves a purpose. And the way I put it is this way people say, well, you know, all my stuff gets wiped out by insects. But you go out to a forest and you stand in the middle of a forest and it's complete abundance and no one sprays any insecticide. Nobody fertilizes anything. Nobody turns any soil. Nobody even freaking waters anything. 
And to me, if we take one piece out and, and we take something out and it's, it's small and insignificant, the whole thing can collapse on itself and we start to have all these problems. But to me, something like a bat that, that people either have an irrational fear of or just don't care about is not a small piece of our ecosystem. If they're the number one insect predator, they're a massive piece of an interconnected ecosystem. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's something that's, so few people knew for so long. So I, you know, I think that um, I think that people assumed that they weren't good for anything, and really went in, you know, uh, went into caves and killed bats on purpose, killed tens of thousands of bats. You know, even even uh, in some of the wars, you know, bat guano was harvested for uh, making gunpowder. And yep. uh, I can tell you, when I was growing up as a kid in Pennsylvania, it was very common for people to go out. Uh, with, with shotgun, with like dust shot and stuff like that, and shoot them uh, right. when they saw them flying around, which was absolutely insane. But I think they were people that didn't know any better. Correct. Yeah, and uh, I, I lived right across from a farmer uh, uh, almost twenty years ago too, and and he would go out and shoot the bats as they came out of his out of his barn. And uh, right after I moved in, and uh, actually the neighbors or the people who sold us the house told me, you know, well, oh, you study bats? Well, you might want to educate our neighbor across the street but um you know i went over and talked to him and he's like wow i had no idea you know and after that he actually a couple years later he ended up putting up some bat houses so so that solves two problems one he has more bats and he stops killing them and two they're less likely to be in his barn where he doesn't want them because they have a place to go that's right so um, let's talk about what happens. To, you know, I remember as a kid, we had these bats flying all around in, in Pennsylvania. And then as you went into fall, you'd see less bats. And then all of a sudden, you don't see any bats at all So because you go into winter. And it's too cold, and the insects aren't out. So what happens to them? Do they hibernate, or do they, do they go somewhere else? Do they migrate? Both. So some species migrate, but not a lot. So they'll migrate to warmer temperatures. We don't really know for sure how far it's difficult to track them long distances we do know a little bit about how far they go you know they might go 500 miles uh some might go farther uh, most bats want to travel as as little as possible obviously to to reduce the amount of energy it takes to to get out of the cold but they can't they can't withstand the the, the freezing temperatures for more than a few days so most bats find either a, a cave a mine or even a building a buildings that are heated you know large buildings especially sometimes the bats could find just the right temperature right around 35 to 40 degrees fahrenheit to be able to hibernate through the winter but by far, most bats will go to caves or mines. They'll go underground, where it's below free. No, it's above. It's above freezing. Above freezing. And then, yeah, and then they they sleep through the winter. They're true hibernators, anywhere from about three months to about six months of of true hibernation. Now, there's also a problem. I don't know, Jack, if you've heard about this white nose syndrome. I've seen it on your site, but I'm really not familiar with it. Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. You know, you haven't gotten it out out, out west yet, um, uh, but in Arkansas, it's it's relatively close now. This this fungus appeared about five years ago, and uh, it appeared outside of Albany, uh, New York. And um, just a, a caver and photographer took a few pictures of a couple of dead bats, and uh, about six months later, had given the pictures to a. a wildlife biologist in new york and he looked at it and he's like this is really strange so he went out and collected some of them had it tested and found out they had this weird fungus on them well we we've never seen this fungus but unfortunately it starts spreading the next year we they had more the next year they had more and what it is is it's this fungus that we think was accidentally 
brought here um, from Europe. Because uh, it, it, it does uh, it does definitely look like it's a, a fungus that's been around for at least 20, 30 uh, years in Europe. And uh, this fungus grows on bats during the winter. And it doesn't kill the bats, but what it does is, is it wakes them up. And so these bats are waking up about seven, four to seven times more often than than uh, bats that are not a, that don't have the fungus on them. And so since they wake up too many times, they end up starving to death. So it has spread in only five years from one state to 18 states, four provinces in Canada, and well over a million bats have died from it. Wow. So we've got colony collapse going on with the bees, and now we've got this this fungus starting to run rampant through the bat population. Well, a couple of questions there. One kind of why I asked the question in the first place about migration is I, I've noticed that bat houses will, you know, a lot of times empty out uh, at the end of the season, right? So they go somewhere else to hibernate. Is there anything we can do uh, to help provide hibernation habitat, or do they kind of look after themselves for that? And then this with this fungus that you brought up, um, is there anything that people can do to – uh, reduce the incidence of that. It doesn't really sound like there's anything we can do, but I want to ask. Yeah, so the fungus does, does not affect humans or anybody else or any other animals, plants that we know of yet. So that's a good thing. It's 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 only affecting bats. Um, what people could do to to help that out would be, um, you know, if they're visiting. Um, one of the big things that we're doing is is decontaminating. So if you visit, you know, if you visit a uh, a mine somewhere or a cave and then you then you go and visit another one a week later or something just make sure that your you know your gear your boots your bag whatever has been you know washed wiped down with like Lysol wipes something like that that will, will so especially especially like people that are like spelunkers that are yes. doing clay, cave exploration yep. they love that environment they need to same way that like we have zebra mussel problems now yeah. you have to clean your boat between different lakes right that's exactly right so so there is a possibility that humans are are spreading it we all also know that bats are spreading it, but let's reduce the amount of spread by, you know, just washing our gear in between, you know, uh, places. So, but, um, you know, for, for bats during the, uh, uh, during the summer, they're not going to be affected by the white nose syndromes, but one way to help them out is to put up bat houses because bats that are, that do have a hard time during the winter also often have a hard time during the summer because of so much habitat loss. So the bathhouses are great for, you know, for all bats. They do leave the bathhouses in cold climate uh, during the winter. And um, some people have tried putting some warming strips uh, or even simple, you know, low wattage uh, light bulbs behind, you know, kind of as a, as a side compartment in bathhouses and have, and have uh, you know, been testing them to see if bats will stay in them. Um, some people have actually created, uh, underground habitat for bats, uh, that have also, that has also worked as well. That would be, that would be ideal because that's what they're actually looking for because they get that constant temperature from, once you go to about three feet underground, it just doesn't freeze down there. Right. So, um, I know some people that have, um, you know, had like a big hole dug and they put a culvert in and then filled it up. Um, and, you know, with, with local biologist guidance and, uh, you know, hoping to, and, and some have, uh, attracted bats to hibernate in them. So, um, 
it, it seems to me like it's a no lose proposition that that if we attract bats, we have very low risk of any kind of real problems. In fact, we might mitigate our problems because if we give them the habitat; they're not going to come into our homes, and they give a lot back to us in the uh, in the nature of predator control. Can, can you maybe just extrapolate how much predator control we're really talking about? You said this one person had what six thousand bats on their property. No, they, uh, yeah, he has about six different bat houses, and he's got okay. well over twelve hundred bats. Okay, twelve hundred bats. So twelve hundred bats. Yeah. How much does one bat take out a night in the you know the high insect times of the year? And what happens when we multiply that by something like 1,200? Exactly. So if you're looking, these are nursery colonies. So males roost usually typically by themselves um, in, or with another bat or two. Uh, these are primarily all females, so they're eating a half to their entire body weight in insects every single night. The smaller bats eat smaller insects. Insects, so they can eat more of them per night. Um, so I would say, you know, a bat's eating an average of around, let's say, three thousand insects a night. So three thousand insects a night times these twelve hundred bats is over three million insects a night. That's a lot of crushing and spraying, folks. A night. <laughs> I mean, you got it. I mean, you're, you're talking a night, and then you go by. You know, depending on where you live, you have 90 days of summer or 180 days of summer uh, time temperatures where these guys are heavily active in doing that. And you start to wonder why we even have the problems we do with insects. And most of our pest insects are flying insects. And what does that mean? They're bat fodder. And, and yet we have problems with mosquitoes. And I, I think that if and we have problems with all different types of, uh, of like you said, moths and uh I mean, a moth is the slowest moving thing in the world, I think, compared to a bat. A bat is a, a moth is like bat candy, and we have these problems with coddling moths and these different fruit moths and things like that. And I think we would just have less problems if if we had more bats. So if you guys think I was batty for bringing Rob on today, hopefully this is kind of converting you to the other side and understanding that it's very difficult. Uh, as we're trying to do things organically and naturally, and from a permaculture standpoint. If we take away such a critical component and don't allow it to do its job, because what else eats three thousand insects a day? I, I I don't know of anything. Everybody likes to have mice, you know, as long as they're not the black widow spiders around. Well, a spider might eat one to two insects a day, and, and where a bat can wipe out three thousand. Yeah, they're you know they're the they're the only mammals uh, that we know of that's ever flown, and so to be able to fly as a mammal, they need to create a lot of energy, and that's why they eat so much. They have a very high metabolism, but they'll live a really long time. They'll live 20 or 30 years old, um, which is pretty unusual for for an animal with uh, that high metabolism, especially being... And that's small. Yeah, exactly. But um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, rabies is very rare, uh, you know... Uh, um, insect insect borne diseases is is more common, so uh, you know decreasing the chances of bats living in your house by putting up a bat house, but also decreasing the the insect borne diseases, but also um, especially moths and beetles. You know, there's a, there's some studies that have recently come out, and uh, one in particular um, showed what U.S. farmers benefit from bats uh, insect eating bats is annually. Uh, twenty-six billion dollars worth of insect control. Twenty-six billion dollars 
from a bat. Yeah. Um, so, folks, that means start building some bat houses. And if people want to learn more and they want to do things like, I, I think they can get bat houses from you guys, but they can also get like plants and stuff. I mean, what, what kind of resources will people find at your website? Which you get is batconservation.org. Yeah, we do have a lot of really good stuff on You've our web, website. Mail. So, so, so sorry. It's all right. Uh, yeah. So. Yes, we do have a lot of really good stuff uh, at our website. We've got uh, plans, uh, detailed uh, plans on how to build your own. We do have uh, books also on building your own bat houses. So, you know, people want the hard plans, they can get those. Uh, but we do sell bat houses. We've got a variety of different sizes. And all the, all the um, proceeds go back into our conservation work. But there's even, you know, how to take a bat walk. How do you find bats? Uh, where do they live in your neighborhood? Um, gardening for bats. So there's a lot of other resources on our website as well. Very, very cool. Well, hey, hey, Rob, I, I appreciate you coming on the show today. And hopefully this gives folks kind of a different topic. I like to mix things up once in a while, and I think this is a, a great topic. And you're, you guys are doing some great work there. How did you end up uh, – Is this? did you found this group, or uh, are you part of it and kind of recruited in? What's your, what's your stake, I guess, in the Organization for Bat Conservation? Uh, I'm – the director, and uh, I'm the co-founder of the organization. So I've been, you know, I started working with bats in uh, 1992, and um, a fellow researcher and I kind of realized a, a big lack of uh, information out there. And then we, you know, slowly kind of uh, recruited other people to come along. So we've got uh, we've got ten ten employees. We do educational programs. We're located here at Cranbrook Institute of Science, which is in southeast Michigan. And it's a cool natural history museum where we teach people about bats. And we have a lot of rescued bats, so we care for live bats. And actually, if anybody lives in the Great Lakes region, we have the uh, 10th annual Great Lakes Bat Festival. And uh, people can uh, come to the Bat Festival on July 9th here at the museum. And we've got experts from all over uh, the Great Lakes uh, teaching about bats. We have bat house workshops. Uh, it's uh, kid-friendly as well. And then we also do research here, too. So even at night, we'll be uh, checking out local bats, uh, catching local bats at night. You're going to catch them. You guys even do, like, live shows and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I travel all over the country and do educational programs. Uh, so, uh, yeah, people can actually go on our website and uh, check out our calendar. Uh, but I, I travel from, from Boston to California to, you know, Minnesota down to Texas. So I do, I do education programs with our live bats. So just similar to if somebody's ever seen a birds of prey program, you know, an owl program or something, uh, I, I, I have, uh, live, uh, bats that we bring. And if you go to uh, Rob's website again, batconservation.org, what's on there right now is a picture of Rob sitting next to Conan, uh, holding up a really big bat. I'm not sure what kind of bat that is, but, uh, that's a big bat. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, so that was on the Tonight Show, uh, during his, uh, short run of that, but, uh, that's the biggest bat in the world. So that is a big fruit bat. So anything big with small ears, a dog-like face, uh, looks like a fox, so we call them a flying fox. Those are fruit bats, and uh, those live in uh, Southeast Asia. We only have insect-eating bats, or at least almost entirely only insect-eating bats in the United States. We've got a few nectar feeders down around the Texas border, and we occasionally see a fruit eater off the, the uh, um, Florida Keys, but uh, we primarily just have all insect-eating bats around here, which are pretty small. 
I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I forgot to ask you that. I wanted to ask you about that because there are some that are fruit eaters and uh, the, the farmer, the uh, permaculturist, the gardener may be concerned. Well, if there's a, a bat that uh, eats fruits, will it come and eat my peaches or whatever? And we just don't have that issue in North America. Right. There, there are no there are no fruit eating bats in the U.S. and Canada, and um, in, in, and even in the wild, you know, they do primarily eat uh, ripe fruit. So. Uh, you know, on a on a big tree, they're probably not causing a lot of financial damage, uh, except in areas where there's a lot of um, rainforest uh, that's been uh, completely eliminated. Then, yeah, they, they do sometimes come into uh, you know uh, fruiting farms and then kind of uh, decimate it. But most most places. Gee, do you mean that if you destroy something's habitat and replace it with something else, that they'll do the best they can? That's shocking. I know. <laughs> yeah, cut down the rainforest and then plant all bananas. Uh, I think they're going to come in and eat your bananas. Because they don't have anything else to eat, yeah. and uh, they might even learn to like a banana at that point. Yeah, uh, in the wild, they're actually uh, pollinators of bananas. They're pollinators of agave. They're the only pollinators of agave. So without bats, we wouldn't have agave nectar or tequila. Uh, that would be horrible. If I couldn't occasionally have a good old uh, Jimmy Buffett recipe-style uh, margarita, I think I would have jumped off a cliff a long time ago. So, uh, folks, you owe bats big time, man, because uh, that's when I have a really tough day, that's one of my uh, little uh, solaces is either a beer or a margarita. I had no idea I owed the bat for agave. Right. So that's cool, too. And if people really want to help out, you guys even have, like, where they can donate and sponsor your organization? That's right yeah people can donate become a member or even uh help like sponsor one of our bats so we have over 150 bats that we care for we've got bats that are very old uh cataracts cancer we you know we treat them for allergies so obviously we have a lot of costs and uh, these are bats that either people had illegally as pets or they lived in the they lived in zoos or something like that and it's it's really a rescue site that uh we can care for these bats and you know in their last years uh but they also make for great educational animals too yeah, I'm sure we learn from them, and then they they help expand the knowledge base and uh, make people. Because I think there's a lot of people that have an unnatural fear, yeah. or maybe it's even a natural fear because it's innate. But uh, they're afraid of these things because they don't understand them. And the way you get rid of fear is through understanding. So, uh, thanks for coming on the show today and helping bring some of that understanding here. Again, folks, the uh, website is batconservation.org. And uh, I, I, I guess do you guys have any way people can connect with you there? Are you guys on the on the social media bandwagon yet or anything with Twitter and Facebook and all that? Oh, for sure, yeah. We've got a great face, a couple of Facebook pages. Um, our primary Facebook page, then we have a Bat Festival Facebook page. And we're, we're, we're doing Twitter slowly, and, um, and we do have a bunch of uh, video up on YouTube as well. Great. So, folks, get on by Rob's website. Connect with them uh, if you're a social media type person, uh, which, of course, I am, and I think everybody should be because that's a new way the world's communicating and uh, helps spread the message. And uh, if you want to get rid of uh, literally tons of insects a year without doing a whole lot of work, maybe consider putting in a few bad houses, planting some things that uh, will help uh, help out with uh, improving the overall bat uh, habitat in your area. And above all, don't be afraid. Of them. Rob, you got any final thoughts for us today? No, I think you're right. And I think that the last thing is is to tell other people. So, you know, that the best way to uh, to protect something is to be educated about it and then tell lots of other people. Well, Rob, again, thank you for being on the show today. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares. They're living 